Last week, first class, we covered which chapter? Chapter 1, Pedagogic. Okay. And we introduced the question, um, the unspoken question, what is perfection? And is perfection attainable? Um, and we suggested that the answer might have something to do with different types of people mentioned in the writings of the sages, namely the Tzaddik, the Rasha, and the Bainini. But we don't know exactly how to define any of them yet. And we said that toward a better understanding of Tzaddik, Rasha, and Bainini, and how they will in turn help us understand if perfection is attainable, and if yes, what kind of perfection, uh, we want to introduce a Kabbalistic concept, something from Lurianic Kabbalah, from Darizal, the doctrine of the two souls. So far so good? Does this ring a bell that sounds like what we spoke about last week? Yeah. Oh, it's a relief. Okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure that this sounds like what we talked about last week. Um, and we introduced the first of these two souls which we referred to here as the, do you remember how we called it? The animal, the animal soul. soul. Animal soul. Now, it, it's interesting, by the way, in chapter one, the al doesn't even yet call it the animal soul. That's the prevalent parlance that we use. Um, and the reason we call it the animal soul is because, like an animal, it is concerned with self-preservation. It is that survival instinct. It is the drive for self-perpetuation. It is abject selfishness. Me, 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 me. Now, and again, remember we said, <clears throat> it's not immoral. It's amoral. It's very utilitarian. It's what i got to do to survive. Nothing personal. And, and, and that was the end of chapter one. Chapter two begins and introduces the second soul. The Nefesh Hashemis Shibi Yisrael. The second soul within a Jew. The second soul which is uniquely Jewish. Which is a Chelek Elikami Malmamash. A veritable piece of godliness. What does that mean? As much as the animal soul is abject selfishness, the godly soul is abject selflessness. What does it mean, selfless? It means that the drive and the aim and the entire modus operandi of the animal soul is to perpetuate its own existence. The drive and the aim and the goal and the modus operandi of the godly soul is? Is there a God? To become one with God's existence. Mm -hmm. To dissolve its own separate selfhood. It doesn't want to be an entity unto itself. It wants to return to the oneness from whence all things come. So it is looking for surrender. It is looking for... Uh, You know what the Kabbalists told the 
hot dog vendor? No. Make me one with everything. Good line. It's a good crowd. Sometimes it takes five seconds or more before the laugh. You know what the hot dog vendor said back? 350. It's good. You knew that line wasn't funny. You know what the Kabbalist said? He said, I only have a $5 bill. Can you make change? <laughs> you know what the hot dog vendor said back? Change must come from you. He was a very deep hot dog vendor. He was actually a uh, philosophy major, as are many hot dog vendors. There's a lot of levels to the humor here. Take it on whatever level you like. Now, before we get into this, this abject selflessness, this, this drive for uh, self-annihilation, wow, that's a, that's a crazy word, that's radical, that's, that sounds scary, self-annihilation. Um, yeah, yeah, but that's what it wants to do, it wants to get rid of itself, not in a destructive, crazy uh, <coughs> way, but in a, in a truth-seeking way, like, there's nothing but him, how can I be separate, how can I be apart? Before we get into this discussion of, by the way, is it possible, can I get a cup of water? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, so before we get into discussing this drive for self-annihilation, meaning I want to get rid of the, that which separates me from the oneness. Or as they call it, you know what separates us from the oneness is the ego, the EGO, the edging God out. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's a good one, huh? Mm -hmm. I use it multiple times a day. It comes up multiple times a day. Okay, so the God still wants to get rid of that. But before we get into that, I just want to talk about something that is, a, is a, an implied question, which is, you know, we're, we're referring to this drive as uniquely Jewish. And, and I think that needs to be addressed. I, I mean, I could gloss over it. You know? <laughs> I could have glossed over it. Nobody would have called me on it. Or he would have done it after the class. And then, But let's deal with it. <laughs> Particularly because, you know, I'll tell you a story. That when the first bilingual Tanya, Tanya had been translated before, but the first bilingual Tanya, that's the Tanya where they had the original Hebrew on one side of the page and then the English translation of... Uh, Nissen Mandel on the other side of the page. By the way, the Nissen Mandel's original translation of, of Lukut Yamadim, the 53 chapters, came out the same day that the Soviets launched Sputnik. And the Rebbe remarked, he said, the whole world is saying about the accomplishment today that humanity sent this uh, satellite out into space, but the greater accomplishment that occurred today was that Nissen Mandel translated Tanya into English. Amen. Okay. So, but then later on, um, there was a project from uh, Lubavitch of the UK, spearheaded by, uh, the project was spearheaded by, uh, by, by Zalman Jaffe to make a Tanya that had English and Hebrew laid out on the same, um, you know, one, one on one page and one on the other. And there's actually a response from the Rebbe to Zalman Jaffe about the question of whether or not uh, they should downplay somehow in the translation uh, how explicitly it says that this uh, totally selfless impulse is uniquely Jewish. 
and the Rebbe told him not to do that. He said, first of all, you're going to make it seem much more suspicious than it really is. You know, call attention to it and make it seem like we're trying to hide something. Nevertheless, it is something that people grapple with, especially in our day. Um, so, I just want to share with you, rather than glossing over it, I just want to share with you one perspective. Uh, and again, this is one, one perspective, this is my perspective. This is, so I'll tell you now, since you're learning Tanya with me, some of the things I share with you, I did not learn in books, I did not learn from teachers, I learned from God himself. No, I'm not under any illusion that I'm a prophet, but I do believe in Ashkocha Pratis, and there are certain lessons in uh, my studies that I came upon through experiences which the Creator orchestrated for me. And some of the things I'll tell you about my understanding of Tanya are based on these experiences. And, and when I tell you that, I will make it clear that this is something that uh, Hashem Himself taught me directly, and it could be my misinterpretation. So I will tell you first before I share any of these things with you. So here's one of them. One time, I was invited to speak on a panel on a radio show. And the radio show was about religion or spirituality. And the host was, uh, he had the question that he had posed to the panel of clergy was, what is the purpose of living a moral life? Or I think he had framed it as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is similar to a Jewish concept, a little bit different. I don't want to get into it right now uh, in this context, but <clears throat> that, that was the way he introduced it. And he asked the question, why should you live a moral life? Why should you do unto others as you would have them do unto you? And he asked each of the clergy to give their religion's perspective. So the first uh, member of the panel was a, uh, a Muslim cleric, a uh, imam, and he responded and said, "Well, you know, obviously it's it's takes some self-restraint to treat everybody the right way." But you should know that whatever burden is entailed, the reward in paradise is abundantly greater than any inconvenience. So I heard that and I thought to myself, um, okay, I don't know a whole lot about Islam, but a little bit I know. It sounds like they picked a good guy to represent that religion, because that sounded like an authentic answer. Um, then they, <clears throat> the next was a Buddhist. The Buddha said, well, you know, that's a good question, but I'll tell you the answer is like this. There's something called karma, and uh, you're not fooling anybody. You're not going to get away with anything. Whether in this lifetime or another lifetime, it's all going to even out. So the best thing is don't make any debt, you know, try not to make any waves, and hopefully you'll escape the whole reincarnation thing, but you got to do that by not, uh, not leaving any debt, so don't mess with people. Then they came to the next uh, member of the clergy. He was a Protestant minister. And I don't remember which denomination, but from his answer, I always, it always struck me as probably some type of a Calvinist, you know, some Presbyterian or the like. So he said, he said, you know, I was just thinking this the other day, you know, uh, a, a similar question. He said, I was at a demonstration, and I was protesting. I don't know if, I don't remember if he said he was protesting for or against something or he was 
demonstrating for something. But anyways, he said, I was at this demonstration, and I was asking myself, what was the purpose of my being there? What was I accomplishing? And, and in the end, I answered my own question. I said, you know, what's the purpose of my being here? Is that I should know that I'm here. That I should know that I'm on the right side of the issue. And that's very much similar to the answer to the question, why should you be a good person? You should be a good person so that you know that you are a good person. And again, when I heard that, I reflected to myself, wow, that seems like also, again, an authentic representation of that theology. Next they came to the ethical humanist. You know what ethical humanism is? They're atheists, but they have a church where they meet where they don't pray. It's a real thing. It's not a joke. They, yeah, they do. They, 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 they discuss... Uh, philosophy and ideas and ethics from a humanist perspective. They don't believe in God. So they asked the ethical humanist, why should you be a good person? So he says, look, you do whatever you, you want to do, and the other guy's going to do whatever he wants to do, and then everybody just, they do whatever they feel like doing, society breaks down, there's absolute anarchy, there's chaos, nobody's safe. So you have to have a certain amount of self-restraint. You have to say, you know what? So that society doesn't break down, you have to control yourself. I was last. They came to me after that. And they said, okay, Rabbi, the Jewish perspective, why should you be a good person? Now, I thought I was clever because... I had been listening to all of these other comments, and I had been uh, listening for a common denominator. And I found one, and I, I, I found it somewhat humorous, and I wanted to point out the humor. You know, like, subtly, gently, but I wanted to point out the humor. And so I made what I thought was a rather clever quip, and I said, well, before I answer the question, let me just restate the question, make sure that I'm understanding correctly what it is here that you're asking. In other words, and I said it with like a little wry chuckle, you know, so that they, uh, to telegraph that this was funny. And I said, so in other words, <laughs> we're asking, what are the self-serving motives for being selfless? But there was no laugh, there was no nothing. It was like, yes, Rabbi, go ahead, your answer. So, you know, I made the biggest mistake in all, you know, in, in all of comedy, the biggest mistake most unforgivable mistake is if you joke bombs. Yeah. Don't just repeat it. But that's what I did. I thought maybe, you know, we're on the radio. You know, I'm wearing headphones, so maybe they, they didn't hear me. Sometimes you're muted, they can't hear you. So, so I said, so let me just make sure I got this straight. <laughs> and this, but the second time I really leaned into it, you know, to really milk the comedic effect. And I say, in other words, what are the self-serving motives <laughs> to being selfless? Yes, Rabbi, go ahead, the Jewish perspective. <laughs> I don't remember what happened after that. I just, I mean, I don't remember what I said, and I don't remember what they said. I don't remember the dialogue. I remember the feelings. Uh, I think the feelings were mutual frustration. And then they uh, went to a break, and I don't think he asked me any more questions after that. When we talk about selfishness, selfishness doesn't have to be the most brute expression of 
you know, give me all the cake, give me all the candy, doesn't mean that I, I'm corrupt or venal or, uh, you know, I, I, doesn't mean Machiavellian. Obviously, that, that, that's, that's a, a brute expression of selfishness. But selfishness can be much more refined than that. It can be simply about uh, spiritual seeking. It can be about looking for meaning in life. So selfishness, don't think of it as, you know, some uncouth toddler who doesn't know how to share his toys. Selfishness could just mean, okay, I want to know why we are doing what we're doing. Tell me the meaning of life. You have to have a meaning of life. There has to be an answer. This ideology has to have some coherent reason behind it. And, and, and I'm ready for it to be spiritual, and I'm ready for it to be... Uh, I'm ready for it to demand uh, acts of kindness and, and, and generosity and tolerance. That's fine. And just tell me why we're doing it. Why am I doing it? And to say, what do you mean, why are we doing it? God wants it. That's not a normal, no normal religion says that. What kind of a religion is that? It says, I mean, that's what God wants. I mean, well, why do we have to have any other motive? That's uniquely Jewish. And that's why the conversation wasn't getting anywhere. That's why I couldn't gain traction. Because the whole purpose of a religion, I mean, world religions, other than Judaism, is to explain to a spiritually sensitive, refined, kind, good person a coherent reason why they are living the way that they are living. And Judaism is the only crazy ideology that says I don't know this is just who we are I don't know God wants it why should I care about God I, I don't know why should you feed your kids do we have to have a discussion about that why should you be nice to your wife or your husband is, is that a discussion I mean okay if we have to discuss it I guess we can put it into intellectual terms, but does it need a discussion? Sure it does, because you don't uh, you have to feed your kids because they're with you, and you God, you have to have a leap of faith to believe in it. So you're saying that you see your kids and you don't see God. Correct. But, yeah, well, that's what a Jew is. A Jew is someone for whom their relationship with God is just as real as their relationship with their children, and even more so, your relationship with your family only has meaning within the context of your relationship with God. So that, and what's the take home from this? When I take care of my kids, I'm not just being a good person, I am worshiping. When I take care of my kids, I'm serving God. In fact, not just my kids, when I take care of any of God's kids, all of humanity, I'm serving God. We don't, it's not about interpersonal relationships, it's not about being a nice person, it's not about the, maintaining a, a society that doesn't break down, it's about worship. Everything we do, even even interpersonal stuff, it's all worship, it's all about God. That's the defining reality for everything else, everything else goes inside of that. And for a Jew, that is the ultimate reality. I'm here to express my relationship with God. 
Life is a series of various opportunities for expressing that relationship in various different ways. And I don't need an intellectual reason. This is my essence. This is who I am. It's instinct. The in like a bird builds a nest. They don't have classes in that. Can you build a nest? I couldn't do it with my fingers. Imagine doing it with your mouth. Bird builds a nest with their beak. It's pretty impressive. And yet, that's the bird's instinct. That's what they do naturally. This second soul, see how I'm segueing back to the chapter two? This second soul has an instinct. Its instinct is to want to become one with God. That is its instinct. That is what it's hardwired to do. It doesn't have to learn it. That is, that is its entire essence and being. And to the extent that we're in tune with that second soul, it is our instinct and our nature and our essence to surrender to God. And it's not based on anything that anyone explained to us or had to convince us to believe. This is my essence. This is intuitive. This is instinctive. Yeah? So are you saying that if a Jew is not observant at all, that's still going to be their instinct? The question is, if a Jew is not observant at all, is that still their instinct? And the question is, yes. Absolutely. And, and what we're describing then is someone whose behaviors are not congruent with their essence, which obviously could cause uh, some neurosis. You know, that would be a stressful situation. Stressful, but stressful for a Jew. You know, there's an expression, it's difficult to, 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 to be a Jew. But I don't know which is more difficult. Difficult to, to do everything to your demands, or difficult to be a yid, and that's your essence, and not to be doing it, that, that's, that's a different kind of a stress. Right, but I'm saying if somebody wasn't brought up... But it's not about being brought up, because, let's clarify, this is not a, this is not a cultural thing. This is not, <clears throat> this is not about uh, your, your education. So you're saying it's intrinsic? Yeah, it's intrinsic. It's not even a religion. Because any other religion, or any religion, uh, is defined by, you know, to be a member of the religion, you have to opt in. Judaism, I, 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 was, I was in a cab in Yerushalayim last summer, and I was talking to a guy there who was, he, he, he described himself to me as absolutely secular. Um, and we had, it, it was interesting, I, I don't know if he'd had a discussion ever, a, a dialogue with a religious person. Cab driver in Yerushalayim. And, and, and I, I told him, you know, what is a Jew? I told him in my, you know, my best broken Hebrew. I told him that, uh, that, that uh, I told him what passport does a Jew have? So first, of course, he said, you know, if he said the go-to answer. He said, you know, Israeli. I said, come on, you drive a cab in Yerushalayim. Is that true? He's like, no. There's Jews from France. There's Jews from Russia. There's Jews from America. I said, okay. So it's not a passport. I said, what language does a Jew speak at home? He said Hebrew. I said, come on, tell me the truth. He said, okay, you're right. Russian, English, Arabic. I said, you tell me. What color is a Jew? 
I said, you were in the Army? He says, yeah. I said, what color were the guys that you, you served with? He said, all colors. I said, okay, so it's not a nationality. It, 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 it's, it's not a language. It's not a racial thing. It's not genetic. I mean, it's not a, in the sense that we, we normally understand that construct. I said, let me ask you this. If a Jew ceases practicing Judaism or doesn't practice Judaism, or like you just told me that you don't practice, does that make you less Jewish? He said, oh, no. You know, like any, like any Jew will react to that question. By the way, are you less Jewish than me? <laughs> you know what that does to a Jew. Whoa, no. Right? Which is the right response. That's, but that's that instinct coming out. The guy just told me he's secular. But then you cast dispersions. Does that make you less Jewish? Whoa. That's, but he's right. Where's that coming from? That's his essence. So I said, so it's not even a religion. Because it has nothing to do with your level of observance, or even whether you, you say that you, you follow this, this ideology. So I asked him, if it's not a nationality, it's not a language, it's not a culture, it's not a race, it's not even a religion, so what is it? He said, I don't know, Tagidli, tell me, what is it? I told him, Yesh lecha neshama. You have a soul. And neshama sheyesh lecha, yesh bechol ish beisha mi Yisrael. He says, oh, that makes sense. That, that he understood. So, this is the essence of the Jew. This instinct to be surrendered to Hashem, to become one with Hashem, even at the cost of losing the most primal instinct of survival, which the other soul, the first soul, is hardwired for. So, by the way, you can see where there would be a conflict, right? I mean, we'll, we'll get back to the conflict. We're not talking about the conflict right now, but the conflict is a recurring theme in the book. And so you could understand very well how, how, what a kind of intensity of a conflict we're describing here, because where is there room for compromise when each thinks the other's position is suicidal? The animal soul says, if I don't do what I need to do to take care of my survival, if I don't work on Shabbos, I'm going to starve, I'm going to die. And the godly soul is just as much of an extremist and says, if I don't surrender myself to God's will through the performance of this next mitzvah, if I do anything less than the, than the mitzvah, you're asking me, that, that, that spiritual suicide. You're asking me to destroy myself. No. This goes back to what we were discussing at the end of last week's class about the Nefesh HaSiklis, about the third soul. He's got to do some shuttle diplomacy between two entities that have absolutely antithetical worldviews. Okay. Rabbi, yeah. but the, the other conflict I see is how are we to know what God wants us to do, how God wants us to do it. Because even within orthodoxy, there are so many different variations. The question is, how are we supposed to know what God wants from us and how to do it? Mm -hmm. So first of all, the answer to that is very simple. Hashem gave us a Torah. Okay. And the system for following Torah is the system of halacha. But Talmud is full of conflict. And you ask your Rav, and you do as you were instructed. And when you do so, you are surrendering to the will of God. Not because the Rav has some special power, because this is the system that Hashem created. Mm. Halacha is the will of God. And while halacha may be many-faceted, 
and one answer for one person in one situation may be different than another, once you have that instruction, that is your path to surrendering to the will of God. Yeah? question was, at birth, are both souls on equal footing? No way. The animal soul has 12 or 13 years, depending if you're a girl or a boy, to get established before this second soul shows up. Yeah, that's why a girl is not accountable morally till she's 12 and a boy till he's 13. Um, why don't we hold them morally accountable yet? They don't have a chance. That godly soul hasn't established itself, hasn't become integrated enough to give them a fighting chance to be held accountable. Um, now, every Jew at birth has this second soul, but the question is level of integration. We call it knisa. It's entering. So it enters in stages. Uh, at the brismila, it enters. But levels of integration mean, maybe you put it this way, how integrated the godly soul is to the, the, the person means how available is that consciousness for decision-making. In other words, is it this abstract faith that every child has, or has it become integrated enough that that's a consciousness that I can call upon in, in decision-making, that I can actually make a, a selfless choice based on a process which mirrors the selfless impulse of, of the godly soul. Right. So, yeah, you're correct. It's not a fair race. We're playing catch up. That's right. Yeah. Well, remember we talked about the twins last week. We talked about the twins. So who's the older brother? Asaph. Asaph is the older brother. Now, really, in conception, so Yaakov is the older brother, which is the same with the godly soul and the animal soul. But yeah, the 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 animal soul has a leg up from the very beginning. That's why, by the way, this godly soul is called Nefeshashenis, the second soul. One of the reasons it's called the second soul is because chronologically, you get it after you get your survival impulse, your animal soul. question is if it's possible, if it's conceivable, um, to say, returning the question about uh, the difference between the Jewish soul and the rest of humanity. It may be possible for any human being to perform a selfless act, for sure. So we're not talking about a selfless act. What we're talking about is an entity whose hardwiring is selflessness. And, and, and even for the Jew, that's not your animal soul, it's not your intelligent, rational soul, the nefesh um, that's only this soul, which is, like we said, the nefesh is a it's a portion of godliness, it's sort of more of a part of the creator than it is a part of creation. It's, it's, it's more um, aligned with God than it is 
with itself. If that sounds doesn't sound a little bit like a brain twister, but it doesn't really have a self. In that sense, it's even greater than an angel. It is when we say selfless. Again, we use the word selfless, to, you know, like like we use the word tzaddik. Can you give me a ride to the airport? Sure. Oh, you're a tzaddik. Remember last week we said a tzaddik is somebody who needs no impulse control because all, the only the only urges they experience are, are holy. So obviously, you know, you, we use the word tzaddik loosely. We also use this term selfless or selfish loosely because selfish can be a very high level motivation. It could be for you know motivated for for an ideal or a truth or a spiritual. Um, motivation. And then in turn, selfless, I think, is a lot loftier, the true definition of selfless is a lot loftier than, than the way that we throw the term around. Um, it doesn't mean being a nice guy. Selfless means, doesn't mean I put my motive aside, it means I have no motive. So then what's driving me? Some other force. And, and that's the godly soul. It is surrendered to God. Its drive is Hashem's will. Question? Yeah. Um, being that the, the godly soul is part of God himself, and by God there's no you know, time, space, limitations, and how do we understand the chronicity, as you explained, of, of the uh, entrance of the godly soul? That should be time-bound. Yeah. How can we describe anything that's godly as being time-bound? And obviously the phenomenon only... We can only speak of it in terms of embodiment. Um, even the soul above, the soul, not even God himself, but even the soul above is above these constraints. So when we talk this way, obviously, and it's, it's, I'm glad you brought it up because it's important just to just remember, we're speaking about the way we experience godliness, including our own godliness, within the context of embodiment. Okay, or, or, or as the saying goes, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. So this is the way that godliness experiences embodiment. Unless you say, well, that sounds Christological. Well, where do you think they got it from? Except they only said it about one Jew, we say it about all Jews. We say it about all Jews. Everyone follows what I'm saying here? I don't want to spell it out too much in my video, you know, if you can take it as radical. Yeah, the, 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 the embodiment of the Jewish soul is an expression of godliness itself in this world. Okay, now I said something radical, it's, it, now, I, now I'm forced to explain it a little more. Okay, so let me just contextualize it a little bit more. Um, I remember one time that the Rebbe spoke about how especially in our day and age, after the Holocaust, that the existence of the Jewish people, and, and, and moreover, the existence of every individual Jew is a miracle. So that every single Jew, whether they're observant or not observant, that, 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 that's, that's gravy. The fact that there's a Jewish person in this physical world walking down the street is a testimony to the infinite power of God in his world. I mean, there, there, there are similar stories. I think everyone knows about the Mark Twain essay where he talks about the immortality of the Jew or the Tolstoy re re referred to the eternality of the Jew or the, the infinity of the Jew. Um, there's a famous story of Frederick the Great, not Frederick the Great, uh, <coughs> Frederick Willem, who asked Kaiser 
uh, he, he was the Kaiser. He asked Bismarck. Um, he said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an enlightened person, so give me a, a philosophical, not religious, but philosophical proof of the existence of God. And, and, and Bismarck said, Your Majesty, the Jews. So, we can even glimpse this, I'm saying we can glimpse this, um, this idea of the Jew being an embodiment of something otherworldly, just by the totally unbelievable story of our, of our nation. And, and it's not just as a collective, but as individuals. Each one of us is sort of like a testimony that God is present in his world. You know, you're looking for a miracle, maybe you are the miracle. Maybe your existence is miraculous. You know, where is God? Well, maybe you're looking for something outside of you. Maybe, you know, what does it mean that you find God in you? You're an expression of godliness. Okay, an expression of godliness mixed in with this selfish survival mechanism called the animal soul that's trapped in a physical body that has lusts and desires and cravings and hungers and passions. And yeah, so it's a, it's a mixed bag. It's a little complicated. But an embodiment of, 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 of godliness nonetheless. How are we doing? We're following? I mean, these are... Radical concepts, I, I, I'm aware, but... I have a question. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't really understand your answer to Connie's question about the righteous non-Jews and what soul that's coming from. I know there is the concept of righteous. Right. So, what I answered regarding the, 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 the term is chasidah umasayilam or tzadikah umasayilam or another term is toiv shibah umais. In other words, righteous or um, or pious or uh, the, uh, the righteous or pious of the, of the nations. What I was saying is, a human being, an exceptional human being, can be capable of a selfless act, or even having some experience of selflessness. What we're saying here is unique: is that there is an entity that is entirely selfless, that the godly soul, it is only selfless. There's no other operating system. Okay. So, we're talking about this godly soul, and one of the things we're told is that it comes from Chochmah Ilah. Chachma is wisdom. Chachma is supernal wisdom. That means the level of Chachma within the Eilam of Atzilos. In other words, the highest level in the highest world. And then, it is Nishtalshel. It descends and comes into a body. But in its source, where is it from? From the highest level of creation, the highest spiritual realm. Now here, in a, in a class about uh, the first volume of Tanya is not a place, at least this style of class is not a place to get into describing these levels, these spiritual worlds, but suffice it to say, what we're saying is that you can't go any higher than that level or you're off the charts of creation and it just becomes creator. 
And that's, that's the second soul, which is present in every single Jew. Even the Jew, like we said earlier, who's not living consistently with that, who's living in discord with their own godly essence. The question becomes, how is it possible then that we do perceive there are different levels of spirituality? Seemingly, there are different levels of spirituality. Um, whether we're speaking about on a historical timeline, you know, the difference between our great-grandparents and us, the difference between the people who lived in the time of, of, of the temple, the difference between uh, us and, and uh, the people in the times of the temple uh, compared to, to the Ovis and the Amois, the patriarchs and the matriarchs. So, and, and then even within a generation, people who live uh, contemporaneous to each other, also we see, I mean, it's, there are levels, there are leaders, there are those who are not so much. Where, where's this coming from? What is this? What does this owe itself to when we're saying that every Jew uh, comes from the same source, this lofty, lofty, lofty source. Rebecca, yeah. Just, um, just so, to get us back in the context. Yeah. This is the spiritual composition of a Jew. Are you? Uh, uh, is Rabbi saying that um, a non-Jew doesn't have a nefesh hasheni? <coughs> nefesh hasheni is a uniquely Jewish entity. It's a uniquely Jewish right. entity. Now you do not need a second soul to be a good person, clearly, as evident by millions or perhaps billions of good, spiritual, uh, kind, generous non-Jews. So you don't need a second soul to be a good person. What about a gear? A gear becomes a Jew. Right. Receives a second soul. Oh, so automatically that's... That's what happens upon Tevila. They receive the second soul. Just, um, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. one last time. So, so what you're saying is this animal soul, right? It says here, yeah. it's a neutral spiritual, so a neutral spiritual realm, and it's a blend of good and evil. So you're saying that a, a person who doesn't have the nefesh hashenit can still choose good, make good decisions, mm -hmm. do the of right course. thing. That's what. Of course, of course, you do not need to be Jewish to be a good person. In fact, it makes it easier to be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's less complicated. Yes. <laughs> what, yeah. What about the nefesh I call it hasechel? Does the non-Jew have that? Yes, the nefesh hasechles, what we spoke about last that's week, that's also present in all human beings. In fact, when we talk about the tzelem elakim, the godly image, it's not talking about you know having two arms and two feet and a, and a face. Obviously, like the Rambam says, God has no uh, corporeal image. Uh, the, the godly image which is in all human beings is the nefesh asichlis, which essentially means the ability to think abstractly. An animal can only think concretely. A human being is godly in the sense that he or she can think ab abstractly, which means can have a sense of morality. Animals have no morality because they don't think abstractly. And this nefesh asichlis can be present in an angel. It is present in every human being, yes. Yes, it is present in every human being. A little bit on it, off the tangent. The fact that people attribute feelings or emotions to animals, this dog loves its owner and caresses him and gives them children. How do you, how do you explain that in that respect? The, the way that animals express emotion? Right. It's instinctive. It's also instinctive. Yeah, it's, love your master is instinctive. Right, it's not based on a moral ideal. It's not like a dog said, it would be wrong to bite the hand that feeds me. <laughs> it's more like it wouldn't be a smart move. Okay, at any rate, 
I have like 12 minutes here, not even 10 minutes here to, ladies, I really want to finish a chapter of class. Um, the, the reason being is I, I, I want to get us through the 53 chapters so that we can start all over again. We're going to have a little Simchas and start all over again. So let me pound through chapter two because whatever I don't cover this week, I'm, I'm just going to leave it for the next time we all study Tanya together. Okay? That's, that's going to be my approach because honestly, if, if we pick up what we didn't say each week, we pick up what we didn't say the previous week, we're, we're never going to finish. So I'm going to be a little bit of a slave driver here and say, I'm going to crack the whip and say, let's keep moving. Okay. We're talking about the fact that this godly soul is present equally within every single Jew, without exception. The question is, how do we account for various different, apparently, uh, different levels of spirituality? And, and the explanation is very simple. We're talking about the embodied godly soul. So in their source, in their source, all souls not only are on the same footing, but all souls are one. The Jewish people are one person in our source. One entity, one organism. There, during the Mendel Bayless trial, over a hundred years ago, in, uh, just before the revolution in, in Russia, the blood libel was revived. And they accused this Jew, this Ukrainian Jew named Mendel Bayless, of, of murdering a Christian child for his, for his blood, for matzah. And this was just a hundred years ago, hundred, two years ago. Um, so one of the accusations in the trial was that the Jewish people don't consider the non-Jews to be human, and we have the proof. It's from their Talmud. It says, Atim Kriyim Adim. You, this is a verse from uh, Isaiah, but the Talmud expounds, that you, the Jewish people, are called Adam. So the prosecution said, look, it says in the Talmud, only Jews are called human. So how do you explain that? So the defense explained very simply. He said, let me, let me explain to you this based on the trial and, and the happenings around us themselves. The past two years since this child was murdered and my client was accused of committing this crime, um, every single Jew in the world, whether they live in Moscow or they live in London or in New York or in Buenos Aires, they get up in the morning, the first thing they do is they look at the paper and they see what is happening with Mendel Bayless. As if it is happening to them, that they themselves are on trial. Every Jew in the world. Compare this to the fact that there was a child murdered. My, my, my client, the defendant, did not do it, but somebody murdered this child, and there's a family that, that lost their child. Here's my question. Uh, the, the country was up in arms, they were out for blood, they were looking to find the killer, but do people visit that family? Do people check in with them? The people, it's two years later, are people comforting them? Forget about the whole world. Does the country, does the Ukraine support, does their village support them? So he says, this is what it means when it says, that the Jewish people are called Adam, doesn't mean that we're called human. Adam doesn't mean human, it means a human, a guy. The Jewish 
people are not a people, they are a person. There's one person, there's one guy called the Jewish people, who happens to live in millions of different bodies, but it's one guy. And that's where whatever happens to one Jew is happening to all Jews. Like one body with many limbs and many organs. So in our source, uh, there was a grammar teacher who was once, once explained to his students, singular and plural. So he says, like for instance, um, shirt is singular. Shoes is plural. And he asked the, one of the students, what's pants? The kid said, singular on top and plural on the bottom. <laughs> so on the bottom, meaning in this world, we inhabit many bodies. But above, on top, in Atsilus, in our source, is there's one Jew. What happens, though, is as we come down through the pipeline, and, and you know, there's the express train and there's the local train, and, and, and some, uh, there's more wear and tear. And by the time they come into embodiment, this one comes in it, as, as, as a hand, and this one as a foot, and this one as a pancreas, and this one as a liver. But it's all one body. So that if you scrape the DNA from the toenail, it's the same DNA in the brain cell. Now, the toenail is a far cry from the brain, but it's the same DNA, it's the same genetic building blocks, because it's one person. What that means is, in, in the lowest, I say with you know, really sarcastic quotation marks here, in the lowest Jew is the same spiritual DNA in that godly soul as in Moshe Rabbein. toenail, the brain cell. It's one person. So that, and here's something we can talk about for an hour, but we only have two and a half minutes. The way that one connects back to one's own source, the way one is reminded how one was up there before embodiment, is by finding a person who in this world has the same consciousness, consciousness that they had before, before embodiment. In Atsilos, so this explains that Eilam is bishadshus and Elokus is bipshitos. What that means is that created worlds are a novel concept and that godliness is an obvious empirical truth. So that in Atsilas, in this highest world where all of our souls are from, the idea that there's a god, that there's a creator, that's solid, that's empirical. Of course there is. The notion of created beings who have their own selfhood, wow, that's really philosophical. That's so abstract. How do you even imagine such a thing? The exact opposite of our embodied experience, where solid physical things we relate to as empirical truth and the notion of a creator is, is you know abstract there are people who come down into this world and they retain that consciousness that's a tzaddik and these are called if we're following that anthropomorphic metaphor of the body these are called the heads or the eyes of the Jewish people Rosh Ibn Yisro, the heads of the Jewish people 
So that when we want to be reminded of our true origins, we seek out such a person. Or like Chazal tell us, if you want to be dovot to the Shin, if you want to attach yourself to God's presence, cleave to Talmid Chachamim. Talmid Chachamim here doesn't mean just any guy who learned a Masechta. We're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu-like figures in our day. Not as a way of admiring them and, and seeing their greatness, but as a way of being reminded of our latent potential that we have within us, just as they do. So that the same DNA in the toenails, the same DNA in the brain cell. Which is why, no, we're up, what, 11.29? Can I go one minute over? Okay. Okay, anyone who, anyone who must leave, please leave. Well, when you, well, I mean, everyone knows that. You're adults. You'll leave when you need to leave. Okay, I'm going to go one minute over. But I don't want to go much over. Okay. The Rebbe once discussed in the early days of his leadership, meaning in 1950, right after his father-in-law's passing, why can you ask a tzaddik for a blessing? Isn't that an intermediary? Which is anathema in Jewish theology. The notion of an intermediary. So the Rebbe answered based on a Chassam Seifer. Chassam Seifer was a halachist. He wrote responsa. And he explains this halachically. With the metaphor of a single body. Why can you ask a tzaddik for a bracha? Well, why can you ask any Jew for a bracha? Basically, asking somebody else, hey, um, I can't reach that cup, right? I can't reach it. But if you can reach it and you hand it to me, right? So I can't reach God. I can't get that blessing. You reach God and you hand it to me. Well, that's, that's an intermediary. That's an interruption, an interposition. It's not allowed. So he explains like this. Now I've got to use a little mic stand. That if I say to you, hand me that cup. I can't reach it. Hand me the cup. That's, that's an intermediary. But if I say, my left hand cannot reach the cup. My right hand retrieves the cup and places it in my left hand. That's not an intermediary. Mm. If you understand Achdas Yisrael properly, that all Jews are one body, then if I ask another Jew, hey, can you get that blessing for me from God, I'm not saying that they're in a better position to get it than I am. I'm just saying this is my right hand passing it to my left hand. There's no intermediary. There's one entity. Mm. So that's so when you're asking a blessing from any Jew, the right hand passes to the left hand. Going to a tzaddik is going to the head. So every other Jew is also an extension of yourself. The tzaddik is your best self. Is you on a really, really good day. When you are really, really super Jew. That's the tzaddik. And your relationship with the tzaddik reminds you of that and that that, that, that is your real baseline, your real truth, and your real essence, and your instinct because of the second soul. Good? Okay, we can, if anyone wants to have questions and answers afterwards, but we'll uh, officially end chapter two. So can you wrap it up in like two sentences? <laughs> 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 Wrapping it up in two sentences? Yes. Every single Jew has the godly soul equally, and it is a matter of getting in touch with it and finding it in our relationship with Sadiqin. That's good. Thank you. That was good. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.